Welcome, podcast listeners. I'm Captain Jake Moraldi, and this is the Modern War Institute podcast. In this episode, we'll be talking to Major John Bate, an economics instructor here at West Point in the Department of Social Sciences. We're talking to him about his recently published paper on tactical economics, which can be found on the Modern War Institute website at mwi.usma.edu. In his paper, Major Bates looks at the economic considerations of modern war and how programs like SERP and other economic programs were used in Iraq and Afghanistan. So please stay tuned and make sure you check out his paper on the Modern War Institute website. At the Modern War Institute website, you can also find lots of new blog content. And make sure you follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. As always, the opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the respective participants and do not constitute the position of the United States government. This is the Modern War Institute Podcast. Well, Major Bate, welcome uh, to the podcast. Thanks, Jake. I think it's important up front to define what tactical economics means. So if you could define that for us, please. Yeah, absolutely. So there's really two separate parts to it. And so the, the tactical part, obviously, is, is it's a, a, an array of programs used by tactical units. So typically a division and below or really brigade and below. So maneuver units that are affecting local populations. And uh, the economic side is really um, the way we use scarce resources in a combat zone to affect human behavior. Um, and in this way, we're really talking about microeconomics. So how do we affect uh, individual behavior and behavior of, of firms and businesses um, that make up societies? So we're really trying to shape human behavior in pursuit of security objectives through uh, tactical economics. Why is that important for the way that we understand warfare and, and conflict generally in the modern era? Right. Well, conflict has, has become exponentially more complex over the past, the past several decades. Uh, we can go back to the World War II era where our, our objective was really to defeat an enemy force. Uh, we've seen, uh, since then, um, with Vietnam and then most recently the conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan where, um, uh, conflict has become population centric. Um, especially with counterinsurgency operations, it's a, it's a war for a population. We're fighting over the people. Um, not only winning the hearts and minds, but trying to stabilize uh, a society. I mean, in, in, in 2005, uh, the Department of Defense formalized uh, stability operations through publishing a, uh, a directive uh, 3000.05 that made stability operations uh, on par with uh, combat operations. So affecting populations, achieving stability is a core component of what the Army needs to be able to do uh, these days. Is that something that being able to influence the stability of a population, say, is that something that's new or do we feel like it's it's just amplified given the nature of the conflicts that we found ourselves in recently? You know, Jake, that's a great question. We've always faced it. The U.S. Army has uh, had the need to stabilize after World War II in uh, West Germany and uh, Japan after following our uh, military victories there. Uh, we also saw this in Vietnam and really all the subsequent conflicts. Um, it's come up to some degree. But it's something that uh, I think is is always been pretty challenging for the U.S. Army. Uh, we possess uh, technological dominance, so we're great at, at achieving kinetic effects on an enemy. But when it comes to affecting the population um, and achieving stability, that's where I think it becomes a bit more challenging because you're really trying to um, you're really trying to affect populations through the incentive structure, and not just through uh, through lethal force. Well, that kind of brings me to my next question, which is the Influencing the population, we, we hear a lot about that with coin theory and, you know, generally what we've been told is the way that we should be operating in places like Iraq and Afghanistan, the sort of hearts and minds idea. 
how do how do tactical economics factor into that population based approach? Well, the starting point is is scarce resources. Um, so, in in a combat zone, whether it's post conflict or it's ongoing conflict, um, just essential human needs such as um, food, shelter, uh, security, medical services are going to be in, in very short supply. Uh, so under the the stability mandate that the that uh, DoD possesses, that's something we need to provide to the population, and something we want to provide to alleviate suffering. It's also a way that we can help win over the population away from an insurgency that that may exist in a in a situation. So the premise of my research is that the way in which we provide those resources can vastly affect the situation on the ground. Can you elaborate on how what you mean by the way in which we provide those resources? So I'll go back to World War II with kind of the Marshall Plan, where we essentially rebuilt what was there in West Germany and, and in Japan uh, following the conflict. Um, they were very uh, homogeneous societies, uh, very industrialized, and they had strong institutions. So we could go back in and uh, with an influx of billions of dollars and, and a lot of expertise from the business community and from the military, uh, we could uh, rebuild their society. Um, we found in Iraq and Afghanistan the this, this situation was, was very different. Um, Iraq was much more industrialized than Afghanistan, um, but still there were some cultural effects that didn't um, allow for the transplant of a free market uh, democratic society. And in Afghanistan, uh, of course, we had a very tribal, um, a fragmented society, which just, just didn't lend itself to any kind of centralization. So in Iraq and Afghanistan, how did we go about trying to employ tactical economics if we weren't able to do it on the model of, like you said, the Marshall Plan, say, where we had institutions and were able to inflow a huge amount of money into essentially established institutions in those countries. So how did we do that in Iraq and Afghanistan? Well, on a macro scale in Iraq, uh, we began with the, the, the Coalition Provisional Authority, or the CPA, led by Paul Bremer. Um, and unfortunately, there was a decision to, to debathify Iraq, which uh, let go or disbanded the Iraqi army and let go of uh, many of the, the technocrats who knew how to run society with an Iraqi government. So that that uh, essentially uh, dissolved a lot of the institutions that, that did exist, um, which, which kind of hurt our effort there. Um, and we... When we went in and trying to rebuild infrastructure, roads, bridges, schools, hospitals, all the things that we would expect in a in an industrialized, uh, stable society. Um, the problem was when you introduce the the thousands and thousands of unemployed former soldiers and then uh, who became insurgents, um, then an insurgency that uh, that then um, began. And the program that that I really want to focus on is the Commander's Emergency Response Program, which we know as SERP. Uh, which uh, began in 2003 and gave, due to the discovery accidentally of over $600 million in uh, U.S. $100 bills um, stockpiled in Baghdad. A couple Army sergeants stumbled across it. Um, and so we had this, this massive stockpile of cash, and then we could, commanders could start using for essential needs. Um, so we de- decentralized um, the rebuilding process, essentially, for building clinics, uh, um, uh, repairing sewer systems, building schools, whatever the population kind of needed. So you talked about the the macro level, and SERP, I'm assuming then, is, is what you sort of consider the micro level, where battalions and below kind of have the ability to influence where money went, correct? Absolutely. So macro, at the macroeconomic level, we're, we're talking about uh, monetary policy, the banking system, trade policy. The microeconomic level, we're talking about just 
maybe a company commander or platoon leader dealing directly with local villagers or business owners um, to to help rebuild what uh, provide for their needs and rebuild what they uh, what they had. So was the original intention of SERP in Iraq basically a scaled down version of what the macro economic policy was was meant to do? Was it were they trying to achieve the same effect? Uh, that's a that's a great question. It's uh, I think they were they were trying to affect achieve the same effect from different ends. So we had the top down approach where we were trying to stabilize the national government and create a a stable environment with which Iraqi society could could regenerate itself. Um, and then SERP provided that bottom-up impetus, the resources directly to the people to meet those urgent local needs. And if you look at the original language uh, using the SERP program, it was to meet uh, urgent, quick impacts, uh, local local humanitarian uh, needs. And so it provided commanders the ability to not just walk past a problem. So if if uh, if you see or if a commander saw a uh, uh, clinic that was broken that was uh, blown up um, in the war and, and – uh, Mothers that didn't have care for their children, the commander could just therefore fix it. Um, the problem we saw was that this then morphed into a sort of reconstruction-oriented program where we started building larger and larger infrastructure projects. Well, that, that was going to be my next question, actually, was SERP, for anyone who deployed to Iraq or Afghanistan, knows that from that $600,000 windfall, SERP ballooned into a much larger uh, program how did that evolution occur, and, and why did it occur that way? And uh, to put it in, in, in some magnitude uh, uh, to the scale of it, uh, we're talking about four, about $4 billion in Iraq and over $3 billion in Afghanistan. So at one point, SERP constituted 5% of the GDP of Afghanistan. So these are pretty massive amounts of money. Um, and so the program, I think it's important to note that the, the program was executed very differently in very, in different areas under different commands. It was a decentralized program. So some commanders decided to spend the money on schools and roads. Some commanders decided to use it on, uh, on micro grants for small businesses. So what you see is just commanders using their judgment, uh, to meet the most pressing needs. Um, but the trend we saw was, was towards larger projects. And what I'm what I'm proposing in my in my paper is that this this kind of harkens back to the the Marshall Plan, where the U.S. military likes to rebuild, and it's um, part of that is it's easy to see progress when you when you build a new bridge or you have a shiny new school. It's really hard to see progress when you just gave uh, five hundred dollars to a business owner and you really don't know where that money went. Um, so I think it's it gets back to our uh, the the trade off between measures of of um, performance versus measures of effectiveness, the uh, inputs versus outputs. So you have SERP that, that starts out as a, as a decentralized focus, sort of micro-focused uh, program that balloons and still kind of functions in that way or is meant to function in that way. It's just a much larger program in terms of the amount of resources available to it. How successful were we? in tactical economic terms of using SERP to effectively influence the situation on the ground in either Iraq or Afghanistan? And that's a, that's another very good question and one, unfortunately, we just really don't have the answer to. Um, there were highly successful results um, in limited cases where some commanders did it well. Um, some may have had more economics training and, or they just had their finger on the pulse of the community. So they talked to Iraqis or, or local Afghans and figured out what they wanted, what they needed, um, and they could help provide uh, those needs and achieve more stability. 
Um, but what we really lacked as uh, an army or as a military was an evaluation plan for CERP. Um, there were major issues with our data collection, and at one point, uh, the special investigator for uh, General for Afghan Reconstruction, or SIGAR, found that we lost track of over a billion dollars in CERP funds um, over uh, about a five-year period. Um, so that's a problem because we just don't know what those funds accomplished if we don't know where they went. Um, so at a macro level, we're really not sure what SERP accomplished. Um, and the uh, same was true in Iraq. Um, and this, uh, the U.S. Senate uh, finally uh, took uh, DOD to task with this, and Senator Claire McCaskill uh, stated in 2011 there was a disconnect between what commanders wanted to have happen on the ground and what was actually happening. So um, Congress got tired of writing blank checks, and they ended the program in Iraq um, in 2011. So aside from the accountability piece, what were what were some of the problems with the way that the CERP program was executed in Iraq and Afghanistan that limited the amount of potential effects it could have had in those places? I think you had you had several things going on. Uh, number one, we in general operate off a certain set of assumptions. Uh, the reconstruction model that if we simply rebuilt everything that was there, then then we would achieve stability and everybody would be happy when that really wasn't the case. And when you introduce a, an insurgency into this, um, then you have other problems. And uh, David Kilcullen uh, has uh, has proposed a theory of opposed development, uh, whereby there's a, a three-way contest between the government, insurgents, and the population. So we're both, the government and the insurgents are both fighting for the people. So when the government there, uh, therefore builds a, pro a project such as a school or a bridge, therefore the insurgents are motivated to then uh, attack it, blow it up in order to discredit the government. So uh, the creation of projects can therefore fuel conflict in certain uh, cases. So I think it's fascinating using using SERP as a case study for the, the larger stability concept that you mentioned before. The Army has gone a long way to understanding stability operations as being necessary in all operations, to be perfectly frank. Does the Army do an adequate job of... of handling and understanding its stability tasks and the way that tactical economics factors into offensive defensive operations or is that something where we are still trying to wrap our heads around how much influence it should have i think what we have is is sometimes a problem of overload when you have 15 things to train and only time to train five um, especially during a, a rapid um, um, operational pace um, there's only so many things you can actually focus on um, and we've seen a shift recently back towards more conventional operations uh, with some of the great power threats we're looking at uh, currently. I think stability operations have kind of shifted a bit towards the, the back burner. Um, but this is absolutely a, a task that we need to train, and it's part of our joint doctrine as, as on par with, uh, with combat operations. So given the importance that still stability operations probably should have in, in the way that we as an Army function and the way that we understand conflict, how do we go about training our leaders to apply the the tactical economic uh, the tactical economic concepts you talk about in your in your paper? How do we train them to do that? Well, this is a, a kind of a, a a challenge that we have. Um, if you look at the Army operating concept, the Army is now looking at winning in a complex world. So we want to win, but how do we define winning? It's uh, it's through achieving a sustainable political outcome, and this is so. This again comes through achieving an effect on the population. There's definitely, there's definitely a piece of that which, which involves defeating an enemy force through combat operations. But we also have to consolidate gains and we have to achieve a, some sort of political settlement um, so we can, uh, we can reach stability um, and complete the operation. Um, 
What the Army can benefit from is is an explosion in research, empirical research on conflicts over the past uh, really decade. So there's been numerous papers uh, published within about the really the last two to three years, um, uh, which aim to try to understand the effects of economic interventions by not only the military but also international development agencies such as the World Bank, um, and trying to quantify the impact that these programs have on on societies. So that's I think the first thing that the military can do. The Army can uh, help its leaders understand the effects that these programs achieve. So just one example of that, uh, going back to going back to SERP, is uh, there was a study by Berman, Felter, and Shapiro, who are, who are directors of the uh, Empirical Studies of Conflict, um, and they did a study of uh, SERP spending in Iraq uh, from 2004 to 2008, uh, which encompassed the 2007 surge. Uh, what they found, in short, was that large SERP projects, over $50,000, did not affect violence, uh, did not reduce violence, whereas smaller SERP projects, um, especially those that were um, informed by, by provincial reconstruction teams, people with development experience, and were secured by the presence of troops, actually reduced violence. Um, and so that effect was actually five times greater for projects less than $50,000. Um, so the good news is that the smaller projects, the cheaper projects, actually work better than the larger ones. In fact, uh, 90% of uh, reconstruction funds had no violence-reducing effects uh, uh, as a result through their empirical analysis of, uh, of the data. So given that, again, using, using uh, SERP as the case study here, and, and I think that study is a fascinating tie into the question I'm about to ask, which is we imagine economic principles and the way that we influence economics being, at, like you said, at a macro level, at a, at a national or provincial level at, at the least. But something like that where you're talking projects less than $50,000, that's being done at a much lower level than the, than the national level. The question I have then is, where should the focus in terms of this education be in terms of how to use tactical economics to, to influence the situation in a conflict zone? Is it at the level of general staffs or is it at a lower level? Where should the focus be, be put? Uh, to start, we need to treat economics as a, a shaping operation. So this is another way to achieve effects, just as we would send out security patrols or set ambushes or conduct raids to achieve a tactical effect. So when we conduct tactical economics, we need junior leaders to think about the purpose of this operation, um, which, um, as empirical studies have shown, SERP spending can achieve reduction in violence as measured by, uh, by SIGACs uh, uh, within the military's data. Um, so we need leaders to think about the purpose of this and, and really understand the power of tactical economics and mesh it with existing operations. Um, but to do this effectively, we need to, we need to find ways to, to record the data and understand, evaluate uh, the effects of the programs um, that we're, we're conducting. Um, we look at money as a weapon system, I think is a good, a good parallel to, to discuss. So when you have a weapon, you need to zero that weapon. Uh, you need to adjust effects on target. And I think that's, that's where we were challenged with SERP. We really didn't understand uh, what the effects were of the weapon. In, in, in all cases, we didn't know what exactly we were targeting. And we didn't really have a mechanism to evaluate it. Um, and that's where uh, these empirical studies uh, can help us out. Um, in the international development community, uh, they've begun using impact evaluations over the past decade um, because there have been hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars in aid dollars that have poured overseas to developing countries, um, but not a lot of data on what the outcomes were, whether it was programs oriented on, on health or literacy or job training. 
Um, so eight agencies decided they need to figure out what exactly that was accomplishing. And so that's a best practice that, that I think the Army can take um, and, and harness to improve our use of money as a weapon system. Given the need to to do that assessment and, and understand what the the measure performance, measure effectiveness is, who should be who should be executing that, I guess for lack of a better term? Is that something that a cadet who graduates from West Point next year needs to be prepared to do as a lieutenant, or is that something that should the focus should be on a on a higher level staff or a, a new kind of specialty that focuses on on those sort of non kinetic effects? Um, um, tactical economic programs um, would be executed by the soldiers that are in closest proximity to the population. So it may be the, maybe a platoon leader who's going out on patrol and sees the needs of the people and then can therefore provide nominate projects and provide money to the people who need it the most. And this can happen at several levels up to company, battalion, maybe brigade level based on the size of the need. And that's how the approval process is based on the, the dollar value of the project being considered. But when you look at smaller units, they can really touch more people on an individual basis because they're out there patrolling uh, amongst the villages and the various communities. However, um, and then that will generate the data, the data set that we, which we can then evaluate. And so, um, so these um, economic programs then would have to be evaluated at a higher level, probably at the um, in order to generate large enough sample sizes to, to use the empirical methods, we need, you know, probably hundreds or thousands of, of data points within uh, various geographical regions. So you'd probably see analysis at brigade and above and possibly at the operational level of war. So here we're translating tactical successes into operational um, victories um, in order to, to get enough data to really analyze it. And, to, and the other, the other uh, challenge we have is an expertise gap in the ability to evaluate. It's a very complex business. It's something that um, outside of the military, even uh, the best international development agencies and NGOs uh, have trouble doing. Um, so to, to bring in the talent we need, the social scientists, the researchers, we probably need to concentrate them at, uh, at a higher level, probably at uh, regional command headquarters, division headquarters or above. But we're, we're definitely evaluating, evaluating the effects of those platoon leaders and those, uh, um, those soldiers uh, influencing villagers at the ground level. So even though a platoon leader may not need to understand how to do the the actual data crunching to determine effectiveness of, of this project versus that project, they obviously have to, in order to execute in the most meaningful way to achieve the best effects, need to understand something of, of what what projects or how big of projects are going to do that. So if I were, were a cadet graduating from West Point this year, what sort of things should I focus on reading or studying or tr- how should I go about developing myself to be prepared to do that sort of assessment on the ground with my soldiers? And that's where the, the challenge really comes in because in this case, we don't actually have all the answers. But um, what I'd recommend to a, to a young lieutenant, a future platoon leader, is to, number one, understand commander's intent, at least two levels up. Um, so... It's it's uh, it's really difficult to uh, to be successful in operation if you don't know what you're trying to achieve. So this is why we give uh, tactical task and purpose to our subordinate units. So it may be to the purpose may be to destroy an enemy um, or uh, you know, treat enemy forces. In this case, it's to reduce violence. So what I'm arguing for is uh, is a standardized outcome variable of our spending. So as we use money as a weapon, we know what we're trying to uh, the effects we're trying to achieve on the target. Um, 
And this is a shift away from the reconstruction model where we focused really on inputs, which was number of schools built, number of miles of road constructed, um, which isn't necessarily correlated to ending the conflict. Um, and, and in fact, may make the conflict worse and then waste money in the process. So what we need to start looking at is, is the end state and keeping the end state in mind and then translating that down to the lower level units. Um, so, um, Platoon leaders, company commanders understand what they're trying to achieve is really stability, um, achieving local political settlements within their area, which mm -hmm. may vary from village to village, valley to valley, and in, uh, in the, the types of uh, regions in which we typically operate under fragility and conflict. Mm -hmm. um, and the other thing, too, we, there, but there are some very important economic principles we need to, to get across to young leaders. And this is based off, uh, off the recent literature in economics that uh, two of the tenets that we see in um, a lot of our military doctrine, including the, the Center for Army Lessons Learned um, Handbook on Money as a Weapon System, FM 324, the, the Counterinsurgency Manual, and the Army Stability Manual, is, is two things. Number one, a focus on reconstruction, which we already talked about. Um, and then a focus on putting people back to work, so fighting unemployment through public works programs. Um, and both of these, they sound great in theory, but on the ground they don't actually work the way that you intend. Um, so we discussed how building um, infrastructure can actually give insurgents something to, to fight over to discredit the government. Same with employment. Um, uh, there have been several papers uh, that, uh, that conducted studies in Iraq, Afghanistan, and the Philippines showing that um, increasing employment may actually make counterinsurgency more difficult um, because then uh, you provide additional resources to people um, and buying information from uh, from the villagers may actually be more difficult because they have more resources. But on um, on the whole, the effect is very complicated, and uh, it's it's tough to justify spending money on something that may not work. I know in my experience that the use of money was was argued over quite a bit, uh, particularly the idea that Afghans, in in my experience, because I only ever went to Afghanistan were dependent on U.S. funds, and it was like the thing keeping the economy afloat. How does how does that jibe with using tactical economics to create an effect but not, you know, hamper the economic development of the country that you're trying to stabilize? I think you bring up a great point, Jake, about uh, we want to assist a community but not create dependence um, on U.S. assistance, um, which also creates corruption in many cases and, and kind of changes the power dynamics of the, uh, um, within in the area. Um, there have been, there's been a very good example actually of this in Afghanistan, uh, the National Solidarity Program, which is a, a Afghanistan's largest uh, reconstruction program and development program funded by the World Bank, but administered through the Afghan government. Um, and uh, some MIT researchers did a randomized controlled trial, so an impact evaluation of this program, and they found that it actually worked. It increased uh, villagers' perceptions of the government, perceptions of their well-being, and it increased security. However, however, there was uh, one caveat to that in that there was a certain threshold, a minimum threshold of security necessary to do that, which is provided by Afghan and U.S. forces. Um, so the takeaway from that is, is that development – uh, can really only occur once security is established. So that's why um, I'm recommending that the Army focus first on establishing security before we uh, move on to other goals such as economic development and reconstruction. 
All right. I think that's all I have for you. Thank you so much, Major Bate. I appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. Cool. Thanks, Jake. Enjoyed it. If you'd like to find additional research, op-eds, and other original ideas from the Modern War Institute, please visit the War Council blog at mwi.usma.edu or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can find new episodes of the Modern War Institute podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. For the Modern War Institute, I'm Captain Jake Moraldi. I hope you'll join us next time for more in-depth discussions on war, policy, and leadership. Thank you.